The book of Revelation, chapter 19, I'll read just verses 1 through 5. Revelation, chapter 19, verses 1 through 5. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true And righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who has corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen! Alleluia! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we rejoice in you, O Christ, that you have revealed yourself in a manner that is fitting and in accord with your saving purposes. How you have shown us yourself in your word and here in this great book, these or this letter given to the churches of Asia Minor and to the church in every age that you might continue to reveal yourself from your word to us so that there might be in our hearts always a, a fuel that fires our worship and our praise, that we would know of what Scripture says of you, and so we would exalt you, our risen Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, there is even now in Revelation 19, a fundamental shift that is indicated by these opening words after these things. John, in his letter given to him by Christ, as he was called up in the Spirit on a Sunday, on the Lord's Day, writes to the churches of Asia Minor so that they might understand the implications of the significance of Christ taking the throne of heaven and earth. This does not mean that Christ was not God, that Christ did not have rule and reign prior to his coming. We see Christ at work throughout the Old Testament as he was with Israel in the wilderness. He was the pillar of smoke and fire. He was with Daniel. He was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, when the three of them were cast into the fiery furnace. He was the one with whom Joshua met, the commander of the army of the Lord, and time and time again, Christ appears in the Old Testament, more glorious in the New, and then here in the book of Revelation, Christ is at his most glorious, having taken the throne of heaven and earth. And so here in Revelation chapter 19, after these things is a reflection of all that has come before. So we are to take Revelation 1 through 18, and especially those chapters that are reflections of the throne room in heaven, 
and all that Christ does on earth as king of heaven and earth, we are taking all of this into account, especially the judgment of Jerusalem and the temple and that great nation that has made herself a harlot because of her adulterous idolatry. It's vivid language, I think we can all agree. And that vivid language is there for a reason. It is to help us understand as the New Testament church what has happened to the old bride. She has been set aside. God has covenantally cast her off. And this after warning, after warning, after warning. God, like Hosea, was covenantally united to a wayward bride. And throughout the prophets, God warned Israel, if you continue and persist in your rebellion, you will receive the full measure of that rebellion. Now, up until the coming of Christ, it was heinous. In fact, one of the great charges that God levels against Israel is that she murdered the prophets. Now, the murdering of the prophets is unique in the level of the heinousness of its sin. That the sins of those who do so knowing what God asks of them are particularly profound. They are great betrayals. And so the sins of the covenant people of God are always more heinous in their nature than the sins even of those who do not know exactly how they are to walk. That Israel sinned in the face of great warning. And the greatest of all of those sins was not the putting to death of the Old Testament prophets, but Christ himself. That was the great sin to silence the light, to silence the light and to do so by entering into an holy truce and unholy truce with Rome, the beast that we find pictured in the book of Revelation. And so we find the woman being judged by being connected to the beast. She and the beast together are cast down. They experience defeat. And this defeat through Christ and his resurrected glory. Now, after these things, what the saints in heaven behold and what we together with them, as we open the book of Revelation, we are seeing something of what they are seeing, though not to the same extent. We can say we now know what God is up to. God will bring to nothing all the plans of the dragon, the beast, and the woman, this unholy trinity, will not succeed in their bringing against the church, the righteous woman, the new bride, the bride that comes down from heaven. They will not succeed in separating her from the redeeming purpose, the redeeming power, the glory and love of Christ. Satan will lose Satan has lost, and though he is wandering throughout the earth seeking to devour whom he will, and though he has some power, he is no longer present in the heavenly places 
as he once was. He was cast down, defeated by Michael the archangel, and now lurks on earth. And that is why we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dear saints, we want to see Satan defeated. And Christ will express his glory in the defeat of evil in two ways. He will either judge evil or he will redeem evil people. And he will make them righteous by his blood. This is the way Christ will conquer the earth. But that work of conquering of messianic power displayed on earth is determined not by men, but by God himself. All we can do is look at what God is doing, and for all that God does, the whole content of it, all that Christ is working on earth, whether it is grace or judgment, we are to look at it and say, because it is the work of our risen Messiah, it is good, and it brings him glory, And we want to be part of bringing him glory as we see his kingdom unfold. And so two points then that I want to make this morning after that lengthy introduction. The first point, after these things. And the second point, alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. We find it three times in these first five verses. Let's look at the first point, though, after these things. Already I have outlined what has come before throughout the letter. The visions that John has seen, that he has beheld, and subsequently relayed have focused upon the glorious outworking of Christ taking the throne. He is king of heaven and earth. And then all of these things that we see in Revelation fall out, are taking place because he has opened the seals, he has opened the scrolls, and what the Father has rightly given for the Son to do in his work of redemption, is to take now, as king of heaven and earth, what he has accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection, and apply it. The significance of his humiliation and exaltation are now seen in the book of Revelation. And all that we see to this day is the product of what Christ has accomplished We are living in the messianic age. We are living in the time between the first and second coming of Christ. We are living in the age of the millennial reign, to use a sort of well-understood, though not agreed upon, term. The time between the times. How long that time will be, we do not know. Don't believe those who say they do, right? They're just chilling. They don't know what they're saying. They're trying to get something from you. Even when Christ was on earth, he reflected in his humanity that even he did not know. How can we know? But we know this. We know that Christ is true to his word. And the testimony and the veracity of Christ's current power is the judgment that he has leveled against Jerusalem. Even as he said he would. He speaks of this in the book of Mark, the abomination of the desolation. He speaks of the judgment of the temple that will come so that when nations look at that great and horrible judgment that the temple that once stood as that place that marked God's particular 
and unique presence and favor with Israel, now that it has been removed, the question is, where do we go? This is the question that the woman in the well asked. And the answer to that question, Christ supplies. Wherever there is word and spirit. That Christ inhabits his people. So wherever there is a corporate gathering, two or more, Christ is present. So what that means is, as long as there was someone out there hearing me preach, I just need one. Because I'm here. That's all we need. That is all that is necessary for corporate worship. It is the expression of Christ's church on earth. I remember planting years ago, there were the Fowlers and the Davises one Sunday. Robin, you may or may not remember that. Just two families, and I'm going, boy, these are early days. But don't scorn the days of little things. What has come before? Christ's glory manifested, and not only in the destruction of Jerusalem, but what we see when that great city is destroyed is that there are those who are particularly chosen and revealed to be Christ's beloved bride. And you remember what they wear? They wear white garments, but they also have this name that is imprinted upon their forehead. They are monogrammed, as it were, by the Father with the name of Christ. But they are not the only ones that are named. In fact, there are two groups in the whole of human history that are clearly seen in Revelation. This is one of the places wherein we find this doctrine of election and reprobation is that there are those who are also sealed and named not by the Father with the name of Christ, but by God with the name of the beast. There are therefore two families. The family of the seed of the woman named by Christ and the family of the seed of the serpent who are named by Satan. And they are, by in God's eternal decrees, chosen for eternal damnation and then there are those who were chosen for eternal salvation and what the saints in heaven see is all of this in a gloriously exalted way that goes beyond what we see now we see enough we have seen 18 chapters of how humans are to think of how christ interacts in human history We are not deists, we are not rationalists, we are not secular humanists, we are not those who are blind to the way things work, but we see things as the way God has shown them to us. Now that does not mean we see it all, there is much that we do not know. I do not know what will happen tomorrow, but I do know this about tomorrow, Christ will be on the throne, which means that whatever happens to me tomorrow does nothing to invalidate the faithfulness of Christ on his throne to me. So anything can happen to me. And I know, number one, Christ will never be removed from the throne. And number two, all that he does in my life is for the furthering of his glory and to advance me in the kingdom and to that throne one day. So if I die tomorrow, guess what? My worship will be improved It will not be hindered by laziness. It will not be hindered by sin. It will not be hindered by anything. It will be 
perfected in righteousness around the throne. And so what we find around the throne here are those who exercise perfect worship. And so what they say, what they sing, should be for us instructive and exemplary. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. But that does not invalidate the truths that we find in the book of Revelation. Rather, it enforces those things because what is happening around the throne, what is seen by John, goes beyond what we are able to understand fully and express in the kind of language that we have here on earth. You'll run into this problem when you try to describe the doctrine of God. How do you describe the relationships of the person of the Trinity fully? Well, guess what? You can't. In fact, the Cappadocian fathers, early church pastors and theologians said, when you think of the one, think of the three. When you think of the three, think of the one. And then they cautioned the saints to be careful not to use examples or natural correlates that we see to describe the one who is indescribable other than the words that he has given us? Or how are we to describe fully the relationship of the divine and human nature in the one person, Jesus Christ? Go ahead. I'll wait. Books and volumes have been devoted, and many people have gone far afield to try to describe things that are indescribable. Of God. We can't even really understand what is happening in heaven when it is not talking of God. Just the angels that are gathered around the throne are too great and glorious for us to really grasp the sense of. And so we look at Revelation as a, as a, in many places, a symbolic representation of something that is far more glorious than we have ever beheld. But what we know is this. What the saints in heaven see who are really there, the martyrs, those who gather around the throne and speak with Christ and they plead with Christ, how long will you wait to avenge us? And though the 24 elders of which we read here and earlier in Revelation chapter 4 verse 6, that is us. They constitute the entirety of the Old and New Testament church that we are covenantally, mystically present there, even as we are here, so that when we gather for worship at 203 Rhine Oakland Road, we are also present before Christ in our worship with the saints who are triumphant. I've passed by many churches lately, and there beside the church, an old church normally, an old property, is a cemetery. I love that. It is a picture of the church militant and the church triumphant. And they're not two separate bodies. They're one body. And though we are not bodily with those who have gone before us, we worship with them. And they're worshiping better than we are. They're not distracted by the things of this world. They're not filled with fear. They're filled with what we see here. True sight. Not yet with eyes, for that time has not yet come. 
But they have reasonable souls who are no longer afflicted by the flesh, and they stand before the throne using that kind of language, and they reflect upon what they have seen. And that heavenly perspective there is given to us in the book of Revelation so that we might have it here. And it is a great advantage to you if you take it and you do not forget it or lose sight of it. This is the foundation for not only the substance of our songs and our worship, but the sentiment and emotion that we are to possess when we worship Christ. This is how Christians can go to their death for the sake of Christ and they are rejoicing that they counted it, that they were counted worthy to suffer. Because as soon as your life here on earth is over, welcome to the good life. It's good life here too. And it is good to die for the sake of Christ, to suffer even for his name. But there will come a time when all of that suffering will be over. And so that heavenly perspective, may we knew, never lose sight of it. And it was given to John so that he might give it to us. Christ is nurturing our souls in the book of Revelation on glimpses of that which influences all that we see around us. And when you see the world... I want you to see the pages of Scripture. That's the code. That's the code that underlies everything. I can remember when I was a student, freshman at Georgia Tech, and we were learning HTML, which in 1998 was pretty relevant. And I remember being way out of my depth, seeking to understand a language that when properly written, results in a visual reality. And you can code color, you can put things on a page. All of this was learning the language that lay behind what you see on a web page. And yes, there's more advanced languages, especially now. But as I began to make the connection between a certain kind of line of code and how it looked as a visual representation, there is something of the same thing that we do when we look at what Scripture says and we see it at work in the earth. And oftentimes we grow distressed in our lives because we see things happening in this world and we do not draw the connection between those things and what God has said in his word. His promises. And what Revelation is, is in some sense advanced coding for how we are to think of the things of, of earth. And the more aware and the more acquainted you are with what Christ has done, both in his death, burial, and resurrection, the judgment of Jerusalem, and what Christ has said he will do, enhances the worship of the saints. This is what it means to peer beyond the curtain, to look at what has come, to those things that have already happened, 
and to see that Christ has, in his faithfulness, brought judgment to one bride so that he may make way for the new bride. And so that leads us then to the song, this Alleluia. So the word Alleluia, though it is, it is all over New Testament worship, this word is only found in two books of the Bible, the book of Psalms and the book of Revelation. And in the book of Psalms, it's really contained to one specific section, the Hallel Psalms, Hallelujah, it just means praise the Lord, are found in Psalm 113 to 118. We've sung Psalm 117 many times to the tune, All Creatures of Our God and King, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And it's a beautiful, simple refrain that may be one of the most important things to teach our children. Not only the word hallelujah, but its significance in the history of the church. First of all, that word hallelujah or alleluia is a word that was never translated from the Hebrew into Greek. It is that precious and significant of a word. It was just simply lifted from the Hebrew Old Testament and placed into the Greek New Testament. And it is that word that connects the old and new covenant people of God, one people. And it is a word that is shouted, praise the Lord, as we reflect upon his deliverance out of the land of sin and death, out of the land of bondage. They were sung at Passover to reflect on God's great salvation of the people of God from Egypt. It should not surprise us then that this same word is found here in Revelation, and especially here in Revelation chapter 19. And it is used three times in the first five verses. It is used again later, and we'll get there. Praise the Lord. Now, the first alleluia is found in verse, well, one. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude. Everyone who is there is singing. Nobody's not singing. When you're in the presence of God, what should you do? Don't be the only one not singing. <laughs> in fact, your lack of singing is indicative that you have no idea in whose presence you dwell. And that should serve your silence, should be a very strong rebuke to you that you have forgotten or you are cold to the glory of God. Now, if you say, I don't feel like singing, then I would say to you, there is one helpful corrective habit, and that is start singing. When you struggle with prayer, do you know what the remedy is? Pray. Just pray. And I would encourage you to pray out loud. If you are struggling to worship, worship is not meant to be done silently. In fact, it's better when it's louder. And so when the scripture says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, what does it sound like when billions of people sing? Well, it's loud. And not only is it loud, it's dirt car, NASCAR level loud. It's all you hear. It, it drowns out every other sound. And the way that John writes of it, it's like, well, he says it in verse 6, and we will get there next week, many waters and mighty thunderings. It 
It's a beautiful, awesome, loud sound. There is a loud voice of a great multitude. And it is written as a singular voice, even though it is a great multitude singing, because they are saying one thing. They are joined around one central truth. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord. That is the the summation of what they're saying. Salvation belongs to God. And so it is at first a hallelujah, a praise the Lord for his salvation. Salvation from what? From the dragon, from the beast, and from the harlot. God has delivered his people, even the martyrs who died at the hands of the Jews have been delivered into the presence of Almighty God. And so they look at God having been delivered out of death, brought into his his throne room for worship, and they say, you, O Lord, have delivered me. This is that place of rest. And so they say salvation and glory... That is the exaltation of the name of God. Honor means setting the name of God here, Christ, apart from every other name and power. All of that belongs to Christ, not just because he has been raised, but because he has brought with him a train of captives. He has brought in his resurrection, resurrection to all of those to whom the Father has given him who bear his name. Let this be an assurance to you of your salvation. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are even now mystically, covenantally present with him. You are there. I know that seems so strange. But in the same way that we read in Revelation chapter 8 that the prayers of the whole church are there before Christ, past, present, and future, and he uses the prayers of the whole church to effect change upon the earth in the same mystical fashion you and I are present with him. We are seated with him. In the same way that when Christ died upon the cross, the Father unites in the Son and with the Son in his death, burial, and resurrection all of the lives of those who will be saved by Christ's redeeming work. Now just start writing about that. Start thinking about that. In fact, this is what Sunday is for. Think about this more than you think about everything else. At least try. It's a challenge. But it is the exercise of work and worship that the scripture rightly prescribes for our lives so that we might, by the end of Sunday... I don't mean so ecstatically that we kind of check out, right? There's still things that have to be done. You're in the middle of worship, and you're getting with it. You're praying. You're you're focused, and all of a sudden, Mom, Mom, Dad, Dad, what? There is that. (laughs) Yes, there is that. But one day, we'll be gathered around the throne together with our children, And we will all be singing. Sing out. I am singing, Mom. You know what I mean? Dad, I'm singing. Sing. Because you see as you have never seen before. And not only do you see as you have never seen before, but you see with a sight that is unmuddied by idolatry, 
by sin, by those sinful deeds that are intermingled with the things that we endeavor to do that please God, we can never be free of those things in this life until we are raised. And praise God, he is patient with us. He is patient and he will one day bring us to that place where we can with one heart, without division, in glorious harmony, it'll be more than four-part harmony. I don't know how that... It'll be greater even than four-part harmony. We will sing together. And if in singing four-part harmony on earth, you know what I mean? When you get there and you find that place where your voice and the voice of another just sort of dances and intermingles with one another and there is something that happens in your heart or when you gather together at the funeral of someone who has died in Christ and you sing the glorious psalms and hymns of our confidence and you cannot help but weep, not just sorrow but joy, what, how much more will it be when we are gathered together and our songs will be unhindered by our flesh? We will say, praise be to you, God, because you've brought me here. I'm here only because you've brought me here. But they're not just songs of salvation, but also there is an alleluia for judgment. For true and righteous are his judgments, verse 2, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Now here, in particular, they are singing about Jerusalem. Now I have already many times listed the sins of Jerusalem, the murder of the prophets, the murder of the Messiah, the seeking to silence God's continual declarations of covenant affection to them. They said, no, 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 we do not want them. And not only did they reject them, but they silenced those who stood to warn them. This is cosmic treason. It is the highest form of historic rebellion, ecclesiastical rebellion. There has never been a betrayal in the history of human life than the betrayal of Israel and God. And so those who were put to death by Israel, having seen God's righteous judgment, are not in a fleshly, sinful way going, finally they get their comeuppance. No. What they are doing is they are exercising their praise towards God because of his righteous judgment. And so when we look at these imprecations, songs of judgment, rejoicing in judgment, they are not a kind of hand wringing, I'm so happy they finally got it um, because those who were gathered around the throne were also worthy of judgment. Many of the martyrs were Jews themselves, but they were redeemed and set apart not by works done in the flesh, but by God's grace. They are there, let us remember, because of Christ's salvation. But the ones who are not there, who experience the wrath and judgment of God, are not present around the throne because God is fickle. Christ has manifested his righteous judgment because they are persistently, or were, persistent in their rebellion. 
and because they put to death the Lord of glory. They rightly deserve it. And because they rightly deserve it, Christ gave it. Now, as it relates to who does and who does not receive the grace and mercy of God, this is not for the worshiper to decide. What the worshiper does is does not, he does not endeavor to um, coerce the great decreer, the redeemer, the applier. We look at what God has done and we say, thanks be to God that you have done it this way. And then we plead before him in our prayers and we would say, more of your glory, however you desire to manifest it on earth, more of that glory so that the world may see that you are God and you are to be feared and trusted. And the reason why God can be trusted and loved and also feared is because God manifests his glory in grace and in judgment. And I am so glad it's not me who decides. An unrighteous judge, fickle, right? It's a Monday and I'm mad at everybody. But God is true and just in all his ways. And as this New Testament church that is gathered around the throne sees the removal of the wayward bride, what they are rejoicing in now is the manifestation of the nature and the way in which we all have access before God. We come through the name of Christ. He is the temple into whom we come, into which we have access and fellowship. And so we rejoice in God's judgment even though at times we do not understand it, it is not our place to defend God. For how can we? We know only what we know from Scripture. We do not know what he will do in the future, only that God will continue to reveal himself in grace and judgment. And we know this, that grace is extended to those who do not deserve it, and the way in which you have access to that grace is by pleading the blood of Christ. And so we bring that gospel to the world and we say what? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is what John came preaching. It is what Christ preached. It is what Paul and the apostles preached. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then, as the text continues, again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, which is like Alleluia, all you his servants and those who fear him, both great and small. John is expanding not only our sight of those who suffered for Christ and sing, but this is a song for all of the church, what we call the Catholic Church. Now, that word Catholic that is found in our creeds is not speaking of one particular denomination. And it is not a word that is easily substituted, though some would substitute the word Catholic for universal. But Catholic is two-dimensional. Universal is one-dimensional. Universal refers to the tribal diversity of the church throughout all the world. Every tribe, tongue, and nation is represented and will be represented around the throne. 
as Christ expands the glory of his kingdom and his saving purposes to every nation, every people. The whole world will be covered, right, as water covers the sea. Catholic refers not only to that Sherwin-Williams, have you seen their logo, right, cover the earth? Catholic also refers to the timeless unity that we share with those who have come before us, right? The saints who are in the ground in the cemetery and the saints who are in the sanctuary worshiping are still one body. The, the saints triumphant and the saints militant. That is the Catholic Church. Then, now, and in every age. These alleluias here coincide with and are prompted by the will of God to accomplish his salvation so that 24 elders can be said to be present. Those 24 elders, remember back to Revelation chapter 4, is a symbolic representation to the Old and New Testament people of God in their entirety. We are there. And this should be our song. There should be something thematically in every worship setting where we reflect upon the goodness and the salvation of God manifested both in grace and judgment. This is what makes Christ distinct from every other king in heaven and earth. Because he is the one who has brought about the salvation of his people and the great fall of Babylon. And so they say not just alleluia, but amen. Now, you may wonder, because I've done it from the moment I stepped foot into this church as the pastor, church planner, at the end of every psalm or hymn, I conclude with an amen. That amen is meant to prompt you to just after I say amen, say amen as well. Now, I grew up with that as a hat, not grew up with it. I was exposed to that in another OPC congregation. What are you doing when you say amen? You're saying, I agree with this. I assent to this thing we just said. Now, you can say amen whenever you want to, um, within reason, right? Um, I love it when kids say amen. They may not even understand. They just know, this is something I've heard in worship. It seems like the pastor's getting really excited. <laughs> Maybe I should say amen. Um, the saints in heaven, all of us, look at what's happening in Revelation chapter 19. And we are saying, this is what we believe. Let it be so. This is the, the foundation of our creed, of our life. And so we say, amen, praise the Lord. And then a voice responds, praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. That small and great is repeated from Revelation chapter 11. Everybody, young and old, rich and poor, everyone, sing to the Lord. Here, Three times, alleluia, alleluia, amen, alleluia. Why? For Christ has accomplished his will, both to judgment and grace. And so these alleluias are for those who see things as they are. And so the question for us today is, do you fear the Lord? Do you revere him for his grace and judgment? Why do you sing? 
What is that vision, that knowledge, that hope and encouragement that lies at the core of who you are that gives motivation to your song? Is it the way life is going according to human sight or what God has said? Dear saints, may our song always be filled with Christ's work of redemption. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we would ask.